Chapter 7 of Hester, A Story of Contemporary Life, Volume 3, by Margaret O. Oliphant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7, Alarms. Edward was about a week away from home. He had often been away before, and his absence had caused no particular commotion, but now it affected a good many people. To Catherine, if it were possible, it might be said to have been a certain relief. He and she had got over that explanation when she had intended to say so many things to him, and had found the words taken out of her mouth. All things had gone on again in their usual way, but the suspicion which she had supposed to exist so long without any reason now had actually arisen in her mind. She showed it less than he had supposed her to show it when she had no such feeling. She was on her guard. She did not worry him any longer by her old affectionate way of going to the window to watch him when he went out. That had been simple love, admiration of his orderly, regular ways, pleasure in the sight of him. But somehow, instinctively, since she had begun to doubt, she came to perceive the interpretation he had put upon it, and she did it no longer. But at night, when all was still in the house and Edward downstairs at work in his room, or supposed to be at work, if any sound of the door closing echoed upwards, Catherine would steal behind the curtains and watch if it was he who was going out, and which way he took. She believed him, of course, but yet there was always in her soul a wish to ask, was he really, really sure that he was true? Doubts like these are beyond the power of any but the sternest self-command to crush and Catherine was capable of that in his presence. She would not betray her anxiety to him, but when he was not there no such effort was necessary, and she betrayed it freely to the silence, to the night, when there was nobody to see. And her thoughts had travelled fast and far since that evening. She had no longer any doubt that he loved somebody, and she had made up her mind that it was Hester who was the object of his love. This had caused her perhaps the greatest mental conflict she had ever known in her life. For her life had this good thing in it, that it had been wonderfully free from struggle. She had been the arbiter of all things in her little world, and nobody had made any actual stand against her will. Many pretenses had surrounded her, feigned assents and furtive oppositions, but nobody had stood out against her. It was a great wonder to her that he or anyone should do so now, though he did not. He had opposed her in nothing, nor ever said a word from which it could be inferred that he rejected or questioned Catherine's sway. But with all her natural strength of mind, she set herself to reconsider the question. If she disliked Hester before, if for all these years the bright-eyed, all-observant girl, mutely defiant of her, had been a sort of Mordecai to Catherine, it is not to be supposed that she could easily receive her into favour now. Her parentage, her looks, her mind, her daring setting up of her own personality as a child, as if she were something important, had all exasperated Catherine. Even the consciousness of her own prejudice, of the folly of remembering against a girl the follies of her childhood, helped to aggravate this sentiment nor was it likely that the fact that this girl was Edward's chosen love should make her heart softer. She said to herself that she could not endure Hester. But yet she prepared herself for the inevitable from the first day. 
Perhaps she thought it well to propitiate fate by going to the very furthest length at once and forecasting all that the most evil fortune could bring her. It cost her a sharp and painful struggle. No one knew what was going on in her mind in those wintry days of the early year. Her preoccupation was attributed to other things. Afterwards, when events seemed to account for it, her wonderful provision was admired and wondered at. But in reality, the previsions in Catherine's mind were all of one kind. She saw a series of events happen in succession, as to which she was as confident as if they were past already, and in her imagination she did the only thing that nobody expected of her, the thing which fate did not demand of her. She made up her mind that she would make no stand against this hateful thing. What was the use of it? If the young butt held out, even the most unwise and the most cruel, they must win in the end. It would not be for her dignity, she said to herself, to stand out. She would make no opposition to Edward's choice. The separation that must ensue she would bear as she could, with dignity at least if nothing else. The elevation of her enemy and her enemy's house she must submit to. She would withdraw, she would have no hand in it, but at least she would not oppose. This, by dint of a hard fight, Catherine obtained of herself. She would say nothing, forestall nothing, but at the same time oppose nothing. All the long hours which a lonely woman must spend by herself she appropriated to this. She must lose Edward. Had she not lost him now? He had been her sole weakness, her one delusion, and it was not, she said to herself, a delusion. The boy had loved her and been true to her. He had made her happy like a mother with a true son. But when that vagrant sentiment comes in which is called love, the fools, as if the appropriation of the name to one kind of affection, and that the most selfish of all, was not a scorn to love, the real, the all-enduring. What was previous virtue? What was truth and gratitude and everything else in life in comparison? Of course, they must all give place to the fascination of a pair of shining eyes. Father and mother and home and duty, what were they in comparison? Everybody was aware of that, and the old people struggled often enough, as was well known. Sometimes they appealed to heaven and earth, sometimes were hysterical and made vows and uttered curses. But in the long run the battle was to the young ones. They had time and passion and universal human sympathy on their side, whereas the old people had none of all these neither time to wait, nor passion to inspire, nor sympathy anywhere in heaven or earth. Catherine said to herself proudly that she would not expose herself to the pity which attends the vanquished. She would retire from the fray. She would clothe herself in double armor of stoicism and teach herself to see the humor in this as in so many things. Was not seeing the humor of it the last thing that remained to the noble soul amid the wonder of life? Her sense, however, of this great downfall which was approaching, and in which she meant to enact so proud and magnanimous a part, was so strong and bitter that Edward's absence was a relief to her. She expected every day that he would present himself before her, and burst forth into some agitated statement, a statement which she would not help out with a word, but which she would receive, not as he would expect her to receive it, 
with opposition and wrath, but with the calm of one who knew all about it and had made up her mind to it long ago. But when he was absent, she felt that here was a respite. She was freed from the eager desire she had against her will to know what he was doing, where he went, who he was with, which tormented her, but which she could not subdue. All this fermented feeling was stilled when he was away. She did not ask why he should go away so often, what the business was that called him to London. For the first time in her life, she was overmastered by a conflict of individual feeling, and she was glad when there came a lull in it, when the evil day was postponed. She went on seeing her friends, visiting and being visited, keeping a fair face to the world all the time. But it began to be whispered in Redborough that Catherine Vernon was beginning to fail, that there were signs in her of breaking up, that she began to show her age. People began to ask each other about her. Have you seen Catherine Vernon lately? How did you think she was looking? And to shake their heads. Some said she had been so strong a woman always, and had taken so much out of herself that probably the breakup would be speedy if it was true that she was beginning to break up while others held more hopefully that with her wonderful constitution she might yet rally and see twenty years of comfort yet. The fact was that she was not ill at all. It seemed to herself that she was more keenly alive, more highly strung to every use of existence than ever. She saw better, heard more quickly, having every sense on the alert. Nothing had so quickened her and stimulated her powers for years. She was eager for every new day which might carry some new crisis in it. She did not even feel the deadly chill of Edward's desertion for the intense occupation which the whole matter brought her. And then, though she said to herself it was certain, yet it was not so certain after all. It might turn out that she was mistaken yet. There was still an outlet for a secret hope. Sometimes, indeed, a flattering unction was laid to her heart, a feeling that if it is only the unforeseen that happens, the so carefully thought out, so elaborately calculated upon might not happen. But this Catherine only permitted herself by rare moments. For the most part, she felt very sure of the facts and almost solemnly cognizant of what was to come. In this way, the spring went on. It had appeared to Edward himself as certain that some great coup must have settled his fate long before, it was his inexperience, perhaps, and the excitement of his determination to act for himself, which had made everything appear so imminent. But after all, it did not turn out so. The course of events went on in that leisurely current which is far more deadly in its sweep than any sudden cataract. He did not lose or gain anything in a moment. His ventures either did not turn out so vast as he imagined, or they were partial failures, partial successes. Step by step he went on, sacrificing, jeopardizing, gradually, slowly, without being himself aware of what he was doing, the funds he had under his control. He had been ready in the first passion of his desire for wealth to risk everything and finish the whole matter at one swoop, but that passed over and he was not really aware how one by one his counters were being swept out of his hands. It went on through all the awakening time of the year as it might have gone on for half a lifetime, and he was impatient of the delay. Besides, this new accompaniment, 
this love which he would not have suffered himself to indulge had he not believed everything on the eve of a crisis, became a great addition to his difficulties when the crisis did not come. The habit of resorting to Hester was one which grew upon him, but the opportunities of indulging in it were few, for he was as anxious not to betray himself nor to let Catherine suspect what was going on as at the beginning when he believed that all would be over in a week or two. And Hester herself was not a girl with whom it was easy to carry on a clandestine intercourse. The situation chafed her beyond endurance. She had almost ceased now to think of the mystery in which he had his proceedings, or to rebel against the interest and sympathy which had demanded from her blindly, out of the keen humiliation and distress which it cost her to feel that she was deceiving her friends and the world, conspiring with him to deceive Catherine. This consciousness made Hester disagreeable to live with, an angry, resentful, impatient woman, absorbed in her own affairs, little accessible to the world. Her mother could not understand what had come to her, and still less could the old Morgans, who loved and had understood her so completely, understand. She avoided them now. She cared for nobody. Week by week, with a joyless regularity, she went to Ellen Merridew's dances, where half the evening, at least, was spent with Edward in a curious duel of mingled love and dislike, yes, sometimes hatred almost. It seemed to her that her distaste for everything that was going on was more than her love could balance, that she so hated the expedients he drove her to that he himself took another aspect in her eyes. Sometimes she felt that she must make the crisis which she had so often anticipated, and instead of consenting to fly with him, must fly by herself, and cut the tie between them with a sharp stroke. It was all pain, trouble, misery, and what was worse, falsehood, wherever she turned. As the years slid round into sunshine and the days grew longer, everything became intolerable to Hester. His absence was no relief to her. She had his secret to keep whether he was there or away, or rather her secret, for nothing she felt could be so dreadful to her as the secrecy in which her own life was wrapped and which she was terrified she should betray. And though it was now nearly six months after Christmas, Emma Ashton still lived with the old Morgans and pursued her adventures with her bow and spear in the dances and entertainments of the neighborhood. Reginald Merridew, so far from speaking, had been sent off by his father to America, professedly on business, but as was well known in the family to put a stop to the nonsense which at his age was so utterly out of the question. And though other expectations had stirred her from time to time, nothing had given certainty to her hopes of being settled. She was going home at last to Roland in the beginning of June, and the old people were looking forward to their deliverance with no small impatience. Emma never failed at the Thé d'Ancente, the old fly with the white horse rumbled along in the dusk of the early summer nights and mornings, carrying these two young women to and fro almost as regularly as the Thursday came. Hester reluctant, angry, and pale, obeying a necessity which she resented to the very depths of her being. Emma placid, always with a certain sense of pleasure animating her business-like arrangements. Catherine, who did not sleep very well on these nights, got to recognize the sound, and would sometimes look out from her window and wonder bitterly whether that girl, too, was glancing out. 
perhaps with triumph in her eyes as she passed the shut-up house, thinking of the day when it would be her own. It gave her a little pleasure on the 1st of June when she heard the slow vehicle creeping by to think that Edward had been called away that afternoon, and that if Hester had expected to meet him, she would be disappointed. That was a little consolation to her. She heard it creeping back again about one in the morning, earlier than usual, with a satisfied smile. There had been no billing and cooing that evening, no advance made towards the final triumph. She thought there was a sound of disappointment even in the rumble of the fly, and so indeed there might have been, for Emma was sobbing and discoursing among her tears upon the sadness of her prospects. It was the last thé d'enceinte to which Emma could hope to go. "'And here I am going, just as I came,' Emma said. "'Though I had such a good opening, and everybody has been so kind to me, "'I can't say here that it has been for want of having my chance. "'I have been introduced to the best people, "'and Grandmama has given me two new dresses, "'and you have never grudged me the best partners, "'I will say that for you, Hester, and yet it has come to nothing.' I'm sure I shan't be able to answer Roland a word if he says after this that balls are an unnecessary expense, for it is not much I have made by them. To think that not one single gentleman in all Redborough, oh, Hester, either Eleanor and B tell awful stories of what happened to them, or things have changed dreadfully, quite dreadfully, since their day. Hester could find no words in which to console this victim of the times. She listened indeed, somewhat sternly refusing compassion. To be sure, there was poor Reginald. It was not his fault, Emma sobbed. If I should live to be a hundred, I never should believe it was his fault. But after all, he was very young, and he could have had no money to speak of. And what should I have done with him? So perhaps that was for the best. But then there was Dr. Morris, whom I could have got on with. That was his mother's doing. Ladies are always jealous, don't you think? And I should not have minded that Captain Sedgley, that volunteer captain. But it is of no use talking, for this is my last Thursday. Oh, you don't mind. You have a good home and a mother and everything you can desire. There is no hurry about you. Hester made no reply. It seemed to her that she would be willing to change lives even with Emma, to fall to her petty level and estimate the chances of being settled, and count the men whom she could have managed to get on with, rather than carry on such an existence as hers. It was no glance of triumph, but one of humiliation that she had cast as they passed upon the shuttered windows and close-drawn white draperies at the Grange. In her imagination, she stole into the very bedchamber where Catherine had smiled to think of her disappointment and delivered her soul of her secret. I am not ashamed that we love each other, but I am ashamed that we have concealed it, she imagined herself saying. She was very unhappy. There seemed no consolation for her anywhere. Edward had warned her in a hurried note that he was called to town. I think it is coming at last, he said. I think we have made the grand coup at last. He had said it so often that she had no faith in him. And how long was it to go on like this? How long? Meanwhile, the house of the young marriages was still ringing with mirth and music. There was no restraint or reserve or prudence or caretaking from garret to basement. Algernon, the young husband who was now a father as well, 
had perhaps taken a little more champagne than usual in honour of his wife's first reappearance after that arrival. She was so brave, so plucky, they all said, so unconventional that she had insisted on the Thé d'Ensante going on all the same, though she was unable to preside over them, and was still up, a little pale but radiant with smiles, at the last supper table when everyone was gone. Harry had been looking very grave all the evening. He had even attempted a little lecture over that final family supper. If I were you, Algy and Nell, he said, I'd draw in a little now. You've got your baby to think of. Save up something for that little beggar. Don't spend it all on a pack of fools that eat you up. Oh, you old true penny, Ellen said without knowing what she meant. You are always preaching. Hold your tongue, Algy. You have had too much wine. You ought to go to bed. If I can't stand up for myself, it's strange to me. Who are you calling a pack of fools, Harry? It's the only thing I call society in Redborough. All the other houses are as stiff as Spaniards. There's nobody but me to put a little life into them. They were all dead alive before. If there's a little going on now, I think it's all owing to me. She is a wonderful little person, is Nell, cried her husband, putting a half-tipsy arm around her. She has pluck for anything. To think she should carry on just the same, to let the rest have their pleasure when she was upstairs. I am proud of her, that is what I am. I am proud. Oh, go to bed, Algy. If you ever do this again, I will divorce you. I won't put up with you. Harry, shut up, said the young mistress of the house who was fond of slang. I can look after my own affairs. And as for the money, said Algy with a jovial laugh, I don't care uh, for the money. Ned's put me up to a good thing or two. Ned's not very much on the outside, but he's a famous good fellow. He's put me up, he said with a nod and broad smile of good humor, to two, three capital things. Ned, cried Harry, almost with a roar of terror and annoyance like the cry of a lion. Do you mean to say you've put yourself in Ned's hands? Upon which Ellen jumped up, red with anger, and pushed her husband away. Oh, go to bed, you stupid, she cried. Harry had lost all his color. His fair hair and large light mustache looked like shadows upon his whiteness. For God's sake, Ellen, he said, did you know of this? Know of what? It's nothing, she cried. Yes, of course I know about it. I pushed him into it. He knows I did. What have you got to do with where we place our money? You may be sure we shan't want you to pay anything for us, she said. Harry had never resented her little impertinences. He had always been submissive to her. He shook his head now more in sorrow than in anger. Let's hope you won't want anybody to pay for you, he said, and kissed his sister and went away. Harry had never been in so solemn a mood before. The foolish young couple were a little awed by it, but at last Ellen found an explanation. It's ever since he was godfather to baby. He thinks he will have to leave all his money to him, she said, and the incident ended in one of Algy's usual bursts of laughter over his wife's bon mot. Harry, however, took the matter a great deal more seriously. He got little or no sleep that night. In the morning, he examined the letters with an alarmed interest. Edward was to be back that evening, it was expected, and there was a mass of his letters on his desk with which his cousin did not venture to interfere. Edward had a confidential clerk who guarded them closely. Mr. Edward did not think there would be anything urgent, anything to trouble you about, he said, following Harry into the room with unnecessary anxiety. 
I can find that out for myself, Harry said sharply, turning upon this furtive personage. But he did not meddle with any of the heap, though it was his right to do so. They frightened him as though there had been infernal machines inside, as indeed he felt sure enough there were, not of the kind which tear the flesh and fibre, but the mind and soul. When he went back to his room, he received a visit very unexpectedly from the old clerk, Mr. Rule, with whom Hester had held so long a conversation on the night of the Christmas party. It was his habit to come now and then to patronize everybody, from the youngest clerks to the young principals, shaking his white head and describing how things used to be in John Vernon's time. Usually nobody could be more genial and approving than old rule. He liked to tell his story of the great crisis and to assure them that, thanks to Miss Catherine, such dangers were no longer possible. A woman in the business, just once in a way, in five or six generations, he thought an admirable institution. She looks after all the little things that you young gentlemen don't think worth your while, he said. But today Mr. Rule was not in this easy way of thinking. He wanted to know how long Edward had been gone, and where he was, and when he was expected back. He told Harry that things were being said that he could not bear to hear. What is he doing away so often? Is it pleasure? Is it horse racing, or that sort of thing? Forgive me, Mr. Harry, but I'm so anxious I don't know what I'm saying. You have always taken it easy, I know, and left the chief management to Mr. Edward. But you must act, sir. You must act the old clerk said. Harry's face had a sort of tragic helplessness in it. He's coming back tonight. One day can't matter so much. Oh, no, it's not horse racing, it's business. Edward isn't the sort of fellow. One day may make all the difference, cried the old man. But the more fussy and restless he was, the more profound became Harry's passive solemnity. When he had got rid of the old clerk, he sat for a time doing nothing, leaning his head in his hands, and at last he jumped up and got his hat and declared that he was going out for an hour. Several gentlemen have been here asking for Mr. Edward, he was told as he passed through the outer office. Mr. Merridew, sir, the old gentleman, Mr. Pouncebe, and Mr. Fish has just been to know for certain when he will be back. Harry answered impatiently what they all knew, that his cousin would be at the bank tomorrow morning, and that he himself would return within the hour. There were some anxious looks cast after him as he went away, the older clerks making their comments. If Mr. Edward's headpiece, sir, could be put on Mr. Harry's shoulders, one of them said. They had no fear that he would be absent when there was any need for him, but then when he was present, what could he do? Harry went on with long strides past the Grange to the Heronry. It was a curious place to go for counsel. He passed Catherine sitting at her window, she who once had been appealed to in a crisis and had saved the bank. He did not suppose that things were so urgent now, but had they been so, he would not have gone to Catherine. He thought it would break her heart. She had never been very kind to him, beyond the mere fact of having selected him from among his kindred for advancement. But Harry had a tender regard for Catherine, a sort of stolid, immovable force of gratitude. His heart melted as he saw her seated in the tranquillity of the summer morning in the window, looking out upon everything with, he thought, a peaceful interest, the contemplative pleasure of age. It was not so, but he thought so, 
and it seemed to him that if he could but preserve her from annoyance and disturbance, from all invasion of rumour or possibility of doubt as to the stability of Vernon's, that there was nothing he would not endure. He made himself as small as he could and got under the shadow of the trees that she might not observe him as he passed, and wonder what brought him that way, and possibly divine the anxiety that was in him. He might have spared himself the trouble. Catherine saw him very well, and the feeling that sprang up in her mind was bitter derision mixed with a kind of unkindly pleasure. If you think that you will get a look from her when she has him at her feet, Catherine said to herself, and though the idea that Hester had him at her feet was bitter to her, there was a pleasure in the contempt with which she felt Harry's chances to be hopeless indeed. She was very ungrateful for his kindness, thinking of other things quite unsuspicious of his real object. She smiled contemptuously to see him pass in full midday when he ought to have been at his work, but laughed with a little aside, thinking, poor Harry, he would never set the Thames on fire. It did not matter very much after all whether he was there or not. The master head was absent, too often absent, but Edward had everything so well in hand that it mattered the less. When he is settled, he will not go away so often, she said to herself. What a change it would have made in all her thoughts had she known the gloomy doubts and terrors in Harry's mind, his alarmed sense that he must step into a breach which he knew not how to fill, his bewildered questionings with himself. If Edward did not turn up that night, there would be nothing else for it. And what was he to do? He understood the common course of business, and how to judge in certain easy cases, but what to do in an emergency he did not know. He went on to the heronry at a great rate, making more noise than anyone else would with the gate, and catching full in his face the gaze of those watchful observers who belonged to the place, Mr. Mildmay Vernon in the summer-house with his newspaper, and the Miss Vernon Ridgeways at their open window. He thought they all rose at him like so many serpent heads erecting themselves with a dart and hiss. Harry was so little fanciful that only an excited imagination could have brought him to this. Mrs. John was in the veranda gardening, arranging the pots in which her pelargoniums were beginning to bloom. She would have had him stay and help her, asking many questions about Ellen and her baby, which Harry was unable to answer. "'Might I speak to Hester?' he said. "'I have no time to stay. I would like to see her for a moment.' Oh, "'What is it?' cried Mrs. John. Harry's embarrassment, she thought, could only mean one thing. A sudden impulse to renew the suit which Hester had been so foolish as to reject. She looked at him kindly and shook her head. "'She is in the parlour, but I wouldn't if I were you,' she said, her eyes moist with sympathy." It was hard upon poor Harry to be compelled thus to take upon himself the credit of a second humiliation. "'I should like to see her, please,' he answered, looking steadfastly into Mrs. John's kind, humid eyes as she shook her head in warning. "'Well, my dear boy, she is in the parlour. I wish, I wish, but, alas, there is no change in her, and I wouldn't if I were you.' "'Never mind, a man can but have his chance,' said magnanimous Harry. He knew that few men would have done as much, and the sense of the sacrifice he was making made his heart swell. His pride was to go too. He was to be supposed to be bringing upon himself a second rejection. 
But never mind, it is all in the day's work, he said to himself as he went through the dim passages and knocked at the parlor door. Esther was sitting alone over a little writing desk on the table. She was writing hurriedly, and he could see her nervous movement to gather together some sheets of paper and shut them up in her little desk when she found herself interrupted. She gave a great start when she perceived who it was and sprang up, saying, Harry, breathlessly, as if she expected something to follow. But at first Harry was scarcely master of himself to speak. The girl he loved, the one woman who had moved his dull, good, tenacious heart, she whom he thought he should be faithful to all his life and never care for another. But he knew that her start, her breathless look, the color that flooded her face coming and going were not for him, but for someone else, and that his question would plunge her into trouble too, that he would be to her henceforth as an emissary of evil, perhaps an enemy. All this ran through his mind as he stood looking at her and kept him silent, and when he had gathered himself together, his mission suddenly appeared to him so extraordinary, so presumptuous, that he did not know how to explain it. "'You must be surprised to see me,' he said, hesitating. "'I don't know what you will think. You will understand I don't mean any impertinence, Hester, or prying, or that sort of thing.' "'I am sure you will mean to be kind, Harry, but tell me quick. What is it?' she cried. He sat down opposite, looking at her across the table. "'It is only from myself, nobody's idea but mine, so you need not mind. It is just this, Hester, in confidence. Do you know where Edward is? It sounds impertinent, I know, but I don't mean it. He's wanted so badly at the bank. If you could give me an address where I could telegraph to him—' Don't be vexed. It is only that I am so stupid about business. I can do nothing out of my own head. Is anything going wrong? She cried, her lips quivering, her whole frame vibrating, she thought, with the beating which was almost visible of her heart. Well, things are not very right, Hester. I don't know how wrong they are. I've been kept out of it. Oh, I suppose that was quite natural, for I am not much good. But if I could but telegraph to him at once and make sure of getting him back. I think, Harry, I have heard. Oh, I can't tell you how. He is coming back tonight. Are you quite sure? I know he's expected, but then so many things might happen. But if he knew how serious it was all looking. Her look as she sat gazing at him was so terrible that he never forgot it. He did not understand it then, nor did he ever after fully understand it. The color had gone entirely out of her face. Her eyes stared at him as out of two deep, wide caves. It was a look of wonder, of dismay, of guilt. "'Is he wanted so much?' she said. Her voice was no more than a whisper, and she gave a furtive glance at the door behind her as if she were afraid someone might hear. "'Oh, wanted, yes, but not enough to make you look like that. Hester, if I had thought you'd have felt it so.' "'Good Lord, what can I do? I thought you might have told me his address. "'Don't mind, dear,' cried the tender-hearted young man. "'I've no right to call you, dear, but I can't help it. "'If it's come to this, I'd do anything for him, Hester, for your sake. "'Oh, never mind me, Harry. It is nothing. I have got no address, but I know he's coming tonight.' "'Then that's all right,' Harry said. "'I wanted to make sure of that. 
I don't suppose there is anything to be frightened about so long as he is on the spot, you know. He that is the headpiece of the establishment he is such a clear-headed fellow. He sees everything in a moment, and he has got everything on his shoulders. It's not fair, I know. I must try and shake myself up a little and take my share and not feel so helpless the moment Ned's away. That's all, he said, getting up again restlessly. I have only given you a fright and made you unhappy, but there's no reason for it, I assure you, Hester, so long as Ned is to be here. What he said did not comfort her at all, he could see. Her face did not relax, nor her eyes lose their look of horror. He went away quite humbly, not saying a word to Mrs. John, who on her part gave him a silent, too significant, pathetic grasp of her hand. Harry was half tempted to laugh, but a great deal more to weep, as he went back again to Redborough. He reflected that it was hard upon a fellow to have to allow it to be supposed that he had offered himself to a girl a second time when he was doing nothing of the kind. But then he thought of Hester's horrified look with a wonder and pain unspeakable, not having the remotest idea what such a look might mean. Anyhow, he concluded, Edward was coming home. That was the one essential circumstance after all. End of chapter 7 Read by Anne Erickson, Toronto.